Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. This is Kurt Wilson, your Armchair Survivalist, and today is May 10th in the year 2020. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there, and happy birthday to my wife, Angie. The reason I'm not having any intro music right now is because this show has so much information to give you that every minute is valuable. So we're going to get immediately into the Ice Age Farmer talking about the food shortage. I've been saying this for so long, it's ridiculous, and we are now seeing it all the way up here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Ladies and gentlemen, the meat shortages have hit home and they have hit hard with Wendy's literally removing burgers from the menu of their burger place. They're not the only ones affected. McDonald's is actively retooling their internal distribution networks to try and keep serving meat on their menus. And major grocery retailers, as we've been warning about for weeks, have now implemented the limits on meat purchases if they have meats on the shelves at all. Kroger, HEB, Hy-Vee, and Costco all implement some form of rationing on how much you can take home, whether it looks like two pounds of ground beef and then two pounds of any other protein, be it chicken, pork, or beef, sometimes limits on and eggs. This is prompting especially large families to say, look, I got eight kids. How am I supposed to feed my family of 10 if I only get two pounds of ground beef in a dozen eggs a week? But it's not just the large families that need to be worried because while Wendy's is saying this is just a temporary thing, don't worry, everything's going to be fine eventually, what I intend to demonstrate for you today is two things. One, that it's not. That there are forces at work to permanently codify restrictions that will act as shackles on the food production of this country and of of the world. That global food production is being throttled back by design and forever. This is not a temporary supply interruption as we're being led to believe by the media here. And secondly, and more concerningly, that it's not just meat production that is affected. That the these restrictions and this throttling back is also applying to all agricultural labor and harvesting and maintaining everything. And so this is going to affect all crops. If we aren't able to stop it, will cause food shortages, which is exactly what they want because people aren't afraid about the virus anymore. They're getting kind of tired of the quarantine. They're irritated. They're ready to get back to work. And so they need to give new, sharper, more scary teeth to their totalitarian agenda. And that is what the food shortages are supposed to be. I want to make it clear that even though you can't take home meat, if you can find it, China is actively taking it home right now. In fact, they are extracting the protein from this nation at a record speed from Reuters. As the U.S. is on the brink of its own meat crisis due to the coronavirus pandemic, American pork supplies are being shipped off to China at a breakneck speed, creating the perfect recipe for additional tensions. For some American consumers, the optics of this situation might be poor. Not the optics. It's the reality of the fact that we're having food shortages, even as China is tripling 300% year over year what they took out of this country last year. And so if we're not able to feed our own people, then we need to change the way we're doing business here. We need, that's the point of having a nation is to protect our people and feed our people, not to kill off our food supply, even as we send off pork to China. But that's exactly what's happening because indeed with the meat plants shut down, farmers are now having to make that decision to euthanize their own animals. Healthy pigs are being killed off as the meat packing backlog hits the farmers. Obviously, this causes lasting financial damage to the ranchers and the farmers themselves as well. 
But I do think it's important to draw attention to what's going on right now. And that is that our food supply is literally being killed and hauled to the dump. Here are a truckload of pigs that's already been euthanized, being hauled off to the dump. You can see massive piles of pigs being reported on Twitter and dairy cows as well being taken to the landfill by the truckload. This was sent to me by a guy who works there at the landfill and said, this is the third truck today. This is not the first day this week. And I don't know what to do about it. Farmers are warning, this is not just a problem for us financially, but we have to get this animal harvest going or people are going to starve to death. This is the most calorie dense food production we have is meat. Uh, Animal production needs to reopen or people will starve. This is a matter of national defense and national security. Yes, it is. And that's why when you see all that meat being hauled off to China, you know there are bigger agendas at work here. There are forces at play. It's not just the US. I think it's actually quite telling that Australia meatpacking plants are also having problems with these coronavirus outbreaks and that they're considering shutting down or throttling back production as well. And like I said, it's these union workers, these activists who are getting involved and trying to make sure that food production suffers. How long will these meat shortages last? Is Wendy's right? Is this a temporary situation? Well, we see here that even though Trump is using the Defense Production Act to try and get the meat plants to open, they will only do so subject to the CDC's and the OSHA guidelines. And that means that they'll be forced to implement social distancing within their meat factories, which means cutting down on the production. Let me use Brad Frecking, who is a hog packing plant supervisor, to explain that to you. If I got to spread people out on those lines, which are within a brick and mortar building, so I have no more room. I got to remove half my workforce. So instead of running at 1,400 carcasses per hour, I'm down to 700. I'm at 50% capacity. And that's what you're going to tell me, that this country is going to produce food, meat at 50%, the historical capacity. So you've just heard directly from someone who runs a meatpacking plant. But the key here is that it's not just the meatpacking plants. Like I said, here are Democrat leaders within California saying we need to implement protections for our farm workers. Domestic farm workers, many of whom are undocumented immigrants, are going to be covered by a bill of rights for essential workers. Protections. It sounds so good. It's it's for the public safety, after all. But what we just heard is that, no, this is a permanent throttling back of food production. I think the issue of basic worker safety is so pressing that we can overcome partisan concerns and objections. Workers' rights should be an easy lift. It's in every American's self-interest. Do you see how they've dressed up the permanent handicap? of our food production as a human rights issue. It's just stunning. This 10-point framework calls for hazard pay, child care, PPE, health care, and prohibitions on employers changing collective bargaining agreements. So it makes the union stronger for undocumented immigrants. They are trying to roll all of this into the next stimulus response. In other words, while you think that they're uh, passing something that's going to help the economy, what they're doing is actually permanently destroying food production in the United States. This is not just happening in California. California. Here is an article out of Washington, and it's not just the meat processing, like I said. Apples versus Inslee, a union-led shutdown in Washington state. The state's fruit harvest will be left to rot under politically motivated new state rules. Washington state leaders are about to send 
half of the state's essential seasonal farm workers home. The result would destroy over half of the state's 3 million ton apple harvest. That's 6 billion pounds of apples. That's half of the U.S. production of frozen processed raspberries and also millions of pounds of other fruits and vegetables. 15,000 plus members of the seasonal workforce would be sent home. According to experts, it's unlikely that berry farmers would even be able to survive under these guidelines. These farmers provide 75% of our frozen and processed raspberries and many of our fresh and frozen blueberries. If we reduce the seasonal workforce by half, not only would we lose at least half of the crop, but we probably wouldn't even be able to, to open these farms back up next year because it takes labor just to tend to these orchards, just to care for these fields and keep those plants alive. So never mind actually harvesting the crops, we might not even be able to keep the farms open. 70% of these guest workers would have been employed on the apples which is the number one food commodity in the state. So this is affecting the economy as well. It's just, it's stunning. It's staggering. The federal government eased restrictions on guest workers during the pandemic because the Trump administration figured it out. They figured out that workers are a critical part of our nation's food supply. And that's why these unions and these activists have gone, and the media have gone now to the governors, of, especially of blue states, to try and use to make sure that this agenda gets pushed forward. If they had the president under control, this would all be shut down already. I'm not saying that I am all in for Trump, but I am thanking my stars that he's there right now to at least slow this down. Activists are using legal action, lobbying, and media to pressure Governor Jay Inslee and other state Democratic leaders to pursue the agenda against this guest worker program. It's not just in Washington. This is why that the ag experts are saying everybody needs to be putting in a plan B, if not a plan C, just to make sure that they'll be able to get their harvest done this year. Because if there's a wave two of the virus and another round of this all, whole nonsense, then the inability to harvest our crops in the fall is going to be a complete catastrophe. And that's what we're looking ahead to right now. How the COVID pandemic is sending American agriculture into chaos. But let's be really clear here, because this is PBS, this is the, you know, the media hype here, but it's not the pandemic, is it? It's these unions and these governors that are caving into them and the media frenzy that's created the fear that's being used to perpetrate this entire agenda. And as I said, it's not just California. It's not just Inslee in Washington, where they've sued for more worker protections. You can see the same thing happening in Oregon. Farm workers lack a safety net. See the same thing happening in Colorado, where unions and lawmakers are demanding more protections for their agriculture workers, Colorado food supply chain under threat. You see the same thing in California, but it's even extending into the Midwest and states that you wouldn't think of as traditionally blue. Ohio, Idaho, and North Dakota needs to step up worker safety and food policies during the pandemic. Ladies and gentlemen, they're targeting the states that produce the food for our country right now. And it's not just in the U.S. Again, we saw Australia having the same issues in their meatpacking plants. And we see also the EU talking about the same issues. We need better protections for our farm workers, which means more social distancing, which means less production. This is it. This is the food war being carried out against all of us. The totalitarian agenda requires food scarcity in order to gain total control. But so Henry Kissinger said, control food and you control the people. And to do that, they have to throttle everything back because there was too much food production before. And the whole climate change, global warming narrative just really lost its teeth. It wasn't working at all anymore. People just laughed at these, you know, scientists who were saying, even as recently as a few months ago, 2020, February, top scientist in the UK says, we really should convert half of our farmland back into wildlands for the sake of the environment. Ridiculous. Nobody 
nobody even paid attention to that. And that's why they had to roll out this whole new approach, this whole new pandemic and social distancing and now protections for the farm workers. If you have any doubt that they will implement and enforce these new protections, these new restrictions on food production, then look no further than the way that this reopening is already happening right now. In California, where I am and in Texas, where they've had a few days head start on us, they've made significant progress at reopening things. But what that means is that people got pissed off and so they started saying, fine, we can open up our restaurants, but you can only serve 25% capacity right now. It's impossible to be profitable when you've only got a quarter of your restaurant fed. This is a, a shackle being placed around the economy and around small businesses and around food production and they have teeth. The new criminals are peoples who refuse to bow to the totalitarian agenda. So this is going to be, I expect to see this as well. I expect to see farmers jailed for trying to produce food because this is this is the teeth that are being given. I mean, there aren't enough people in Dallas, code enforcers, to walk around and enforce the fact that there should only be a quarter of the people eating at restaurants. There aren't enough police to enforce the fact that everyone is now required to wear a mask. This is what's being called progress. Now we're, we're gradually reopening. No, it's this is things getting tighter and tighter. The noose tightening around everyone's neck. And again, most notably around food production. And all of this will be in place at least as long as it takes for us to just completely replace humans to get them out of the equation. Now we're actually having the idea of slaughterhouse robots being floated because that way we can just get rid of meat packers completely. Well, if it was completely automated robot farms like the UN has been advocating now for years, then there would be no concerns here. So we're just going to have to completely throttle things down until we usher in the transhumanist food system that we've been talking about and wanting and coveting for hundreds of years now because it means we have total control over you. That's not the direction we need to move. And so when you hear sitting U.S. senators say, well, we really need to create an office of the supply chain, this is not a good idea. This is a further consolidation of control into a central authority that's moving in the wrong direction. What we need to do is take our power back. Like this Pennsylvania dairy farmer who said, forget it. I'm not going to dump my milk. This is my livelihood. This is my life's work here, I'm just going to bottle up my own milk and I'm going to sell it direct to consumers. The American spirit lives on at a 300-year-old cream-lined dairy farm where a farmer worked around the clock to bottle his own milk after his milk processor on contract told him to dump it. Fortunately, locals came from miles around and lined up to make sure that they bought his milk. He sold out within a few hours. This is a success story. This is the American spirit. This is how we all need to work together to support local farmers and ranchers who are feeling the effects of this and who need us to come support them and buy their milk and their meat directly from them. Wyoming as well took legislative action and said, forget the USDA is trying to choke us. They're trying to starve us out. Literally, we're going to pass new laws in Wyoming that allow ranchers sell meat directly to consumers. So far, the USDA hasn't reacted to that. But this is what we all need to do. Act locally, get support from localities, from municipalities, or even at the state level, if you can manage it like Wyoming, to get out of this stranglehold that is being created by the media, the unions, and the federal government. The part where he said, created by the unions, the media, and the federal government. John F. Kennedy had something to say about this secret cabal that's controlling everything that's happening right now. And I'm going to play that clip of when he said that. And that's why John F. Kennedy was murdered by a coalition of all the intelligence agencies in the United States. After JFK's little talk, 
a clip that I'm going to play that has to do with proof, again, and I've played this before, of collusion between all mainstream media, ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, and Fox News. They're all controlled by the CIA, and they all have the same thing to say. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS 4 News produces. But we are concerned about the trouble trying to get responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 In another show, I'll explain why this is the moment that these people chose to try and subvert the world. 
Meanwhile, there is another clip that I want you to listen to. This one is about a woman who started her career of being attacked by the government or the uh, medical mafia when she came clean on the subject of HIV. Dr. Judy Mikovits has been called one of the most accomplished scientists of her generation. Her 1991 doctoral thesis revolutionized the treatment of HIV-AIDS. At the height of her career... Dr. Mikovits published a blockbuster article in the journal Science. The controversial article sent shockwaves through the scientific community as it revealed that the common use of animal and human fetal tissues were unleashing devastating plagues of chronic diseases. For exposing their deadly secrets, the minions of Big Pharma waged war on Dr. Mikovits, destroying her good name, career, and personal life. Now, as the fate of nations hang in the balance, Dr. Mikovits is naming names of those behind the plague of corruption that places all human life in danger. So you made a discovery that conflicted with the agreed-upon narrative. <laughs> Correct. And for that, they did everything in their powers to destroy your life. Correct. You were arrested. Correct. And then you were put under a gag order. Um, for, for five years, if I went on social media, if I said anything at all, they would find new evidence and um, and put me back in jail. And it was one of the few times I cried. And it, it was because I knew there was no evidence the first time. And they, when you can unleash that kind of force to force someone into bankruptcy with a perfect credit score, and so that I couldn't bring my 97 witnesses, which included the heads, Tony Fauci, you know, Ian Lipkin, the heads of the public health in HHS, who would have had to testify that we did absolutely nothing wrong. And so what did they charge you with? Nothing. But you were in jail. I was held in jail with no charges. I was called a fugitive from justice. No warrant. Literally drug me out of the house. Our neighbors are looking at what's going on here. You know, they searched my house without a warrant. They literally terrorized my husband for five days. They said, if you don't find the notebooks, if you don't find the material, which was not in my possession, but planted in my house. As if you took intellectual property from the laboratory. Is yes. that correct? It was, it was intended to appear as if I took confidential material names and intellectual property from the laboratory. And I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, heads of our entire HHS colluded and destroyed my reputation. And the Department of Justice and the FBI sat on it and kept that case under seal, which means you can't say there's a case or your lawyers are held in contempt of court. So you can't even get a lawyer to defend you. So every single due process right was taken away from me and to this day remains the same. I have no constitutional freedoms or rights. Yet you sit here. <laughs> I think a lot of people would probably have just taken the retirement out early, laid low, but you have decided to come forth when your gag order has been released to write a book called Plague of Corruption, Restoring Faith in the Promise of Science, and you are naming names. Absolutely. Apparently, their attempt to silence you has failed. And I, I have to ask, how do you sit here with confidence to call out these great forces and not fear for your life as you leave this building? Because if we don't stop this now, we can not only forget our republic and our freedom, but we can forget humanity because we'll be killed by this agenda. So, Anthony Fauci. My name is uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. I'm the director of the... The man who is heading the pandemic task force was involved in a cover-up. He directed the cover-up. And in fact, everybody else 
was paid off and paid off big time, millions of dollars in funding from Tony Fauci, Tony Fauci's organization, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. These investigators that committed the fraud continue to this day to be paid big time by the NIAID. And the whole world is listening to his advice for how to handle this current pandemic. How do we know that what he's saying is what we need to be learning? What he's saying is absolute uh, propaganda and, and the same kind of propaganda that he's perpetrated to kill millions since 1984. We know from this study quite clearly that there will be a delay in progression significantly greater than for individuals who do not take the drug. It started really when I was 25 years old. I was part of the team that isolated HIV from the saliva and blood of the patients from France, where Luc Montagnier had originally isolated the virus. This was a confirmatory study, but Tony Fauci and Robert Gallo were working together then to spin the story in a different way. At that time, Dr. Rossetti was out of town, and Tony Fauci says, um, you know, we understand that you have a paper in press, and we want a copy of it. And I said, yes, there's a paper in press, and it's confidential, and no, I will not give you a copy of it. <laughs> he started screaming at me, then he said, give us the paper right now. Or, or you'll be fired for insubordination. And I just said, I'm sure when Dr. Rossetti gets back, you can have the conversation. And so Frank comes back, you know, several weeks later, and is really bullied into giving Fauci the paper. Fauci holds up the publication of the paper for several months, while Robert Gallo writes his own paper and takes all the credit. And of course, patents are involved. This delay of the confirmation, you know, literally led to spreading the virus around, um, you know, killing millions. Perhaps no one expressed the anguish of AIDS better than New York writer Larry Kramer. But he was even more angry at the federal government and the pharmaceutical industry. One person who felt Kramer's fury was NIH Dr. Anthony Fauci. He called Tony Fauci the Bernie Madoff of science. It's still been crushing to me to think that I didn't know my work in 1999 was something that had been avoided. From 83 and 82, when the virus was isolated, the virus didn't have to wait until 84 to be confirmed. Think of how many people, the entire continent of Africa, you know, lost a generation as that virus was spread through because of the arrogance of a group of people, and it includes Robert Redfield, who's now the head of the CDC right along with Tony Fauci. They were working together to take credit and make money, and they had the patents on it, and tailored them to IL-2 therapy, which was absolutely the wrong therapy. And had that not happened, millions wouldn't have died um, from HIV. How can a man who's giving, any, any person who's giving global advice for health own a patent in the solution in the vaccine. Isn't that a conflict of interest or shouldn't it be? It is a conflict of interest. And in fact, this is one of the things that I, I've been saying and would like to say to President Trump, repeal the Bayh-Dole Act. 
Bayh-Dole fundamentally changed the way universities approach technology transfer, uh, and you can see that best in the statistics. Universities obtain 16 times as many patents today as they did in 1980. Now, everybody's getting more patents, but still, universities' share of all patents in the United States is more than five times greater than it was before Bayh-Dole. The situation has gotten so bad uh, that one information technology industry official has publicly referred to universities as, quote, crack addicts, unquote, driven by, quote, small-minded tech transfer offices addicted to patent royalties. That act gave government workers the right to patent their discoveries. So to, to claim intellectual property for discoveries that the taxpayer paid for. Ever since that happened in the early 80s, it destroyed science. And this allowed the development of those conflicts of interest. And this is the crime behind letting somebody like Bill Gates with billions of dollars. Nobody elected him. He has no medical background. He has no expertise. But we let people like that have a voice in this country while we destroy the lives of millions of people. Normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. If we activate mandatory vaccines globally, I imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars that own the vaccines. And they'll kill millions, as they already have with their vaccines. There is no vaccine currently on the schedule for any RNA virus that works. So I have to ask you, are you anti-vaccine? Oh, absolutely not. I'm, in fact, vaccine is immune therapy, uh, just like interferon alpha is immune therapy. So I'm not anti-vaccine. My job is to develop immune therapies. That's what vaccines are. Do you believe that this virus was created in a laboratory? I wouldn't use the word created, but you can't say naturally occurring if it was by way of the laboratory. So it's very clear this virus was manipulated, These, this family of viruses was manipulated and studied in a laboratory where the animals were taken into the laboratory, and this is what was released, whether deliberate or not. That cannot be naturally occurring. Somebody didn't go to a market, get a bat, the virus didn't jump directly to humans. That's not how it works. That's accelerated viral evolution. If it was a natural occurrence, it would take it up to 800 years to occur. This occurred from SARS-1 within a decade. That's not, that's not naturally occurring. And do you have any ideas of where this occurred? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it occurred between the North Carolina Laboratories, Fort Detrick, U.S. Army Research Institute of Infectious Disease, and the Wuhan Laboratory. $3.7 million flowed from the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. to the Wuhan lab in China, the same lab where many people have said that this coronavirus infection first originated. We also now know that NIAID, the department associated with the National Institutes of Health, of which Dr. Anthony Fauci is in control, had already been conducting experiments with the Wuhan lab in the past in regard to coronavirus. If Dr. Anthony Fauci cannot be honest with the public about his connection to this lab, then Fauci has to go. In 1999, I was working in Fort Detrick in USAMRID there, and my job was to teach Ebola how to infect human cells without killing them. Ebola 
couldn't infect human cells until we took it in the laboratories and talked to them. It's hard to ignore the death tolls. People have been dying. They are dying from this in, in quite alarming numbers. How do you reconcile that? Uh, um, it, it's pretty easy when you see, um, for me, when you see what the government has done, and that is that they took, quoting Dr. Burks, We've taken a, a very, very liberal, liberal approach, approach to mortality. If my husband were to die, who has COPD, his lungs have fibrosis, his lungs would look exactly like somebody with COVID-19, theoretically, but he has no evidence of infection. So if you're not testing and you don't have evidence of infection, and if you walked in there today, you know, they'd call it COVID-19. And, and we hear this from the doctors and nurses who are upset. I've seen so many doctors online that have made their own webcam videos just perplexed by the protocol that the CDC had given them. Well, last Friday, I received a seven-page document that sort of told me that if I had an 86-year-old patient that had pneumonia but was never tested for COVID-19, but sometime after she came down with pneumonia, we learned that she had been exposed to her son who had no symptoms, but later on was identified with COVID-19, that it would be appropriate to diagnose on the death certificate COVID-19. When I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID. Why is that? Why are we being pressured to add COVID to maybe increase the numbers and make it look a little bit worse than it is? I think so. Why would they want to skew the number of deaths due to COVID-19? Fear is a great way to control people. And sometimes people's ability to think for themselves is paralyzed if they're frightened enough. And that's not where I want people to be. I want people to say, we're going to get through this. I'm going to use my head. I'm going to go to different sources. I'm going to listen to different sources. And I'm going to think for myself because that's what America is about. If someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. You don't die with an infection. You die from an infection. I've talked with doctors who have admitted that they are being incentivized to list patients that are sick or have died with COVID-19. Yeah, $13,000 for Medicare, if you call it COVID-19. Right now, Medicare has determined that if you have a COVID-19 admission to the hospital, you'll get paid $13,000. If that COVID-19 patient goes on a ventilator, you get $39,000, three times as much. And you've killed them with the ventilator because you gave them the wrong treatment. All the things that just don't make sense, the patients I'm seeing in front of me, the lungs I'm trying to improve, have led me to believe that we are operating under a medical paradigm that is untrue. And I fear that this misguided treatment will lead to a tremendous amount of harm to a great number of people in a very short time. My next question is about Italy. I want to know why Italy was hit so hard. Italy has a, a very old population. Um, they're very sick with inflammatory disorders. They got, at the beginning of 2019, an untested new form of influenza vaccine that had four different strains of influenza, including the highly pathogenic H1N1. That vaccine was grown in a cell line, a dog cell line. Dogs have lots of coronaviruses, and that's why they're not testing there. You could just say, oh, it was that. As the country begins emerging from the worst of the coronavirus epidemic, one question remains. What happened to all the hydroxychloroquine? We know that hydrochloroquine 
and zinc are working great for patients. And then Fauci comes out and says, well, there's no double-blind controlled placebo study, which, by the way, Dr. Fauci, is there going to be a double-blind controlled placebo study of your vaccine? Is there? In a survey polling nearly 2,300 doctors in some 30 countries, hydroxychloroquine was ranked as the most effective medication to treat the virus. The AMA was saying, you know, doctors will lose their license if they use hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug that's been on the list of essential medicine worldwide for 70 years. Dr. Fauci calls that anecdotal data. It's not storytelling if we have thousands of pages of data saying it's effective against these families of viruses. For 50 cents a dose, we could protect a 1,000 people for seven days, two doses a day, with one $600 vial. And that hasn't been done. This is essential medicine, and they keep it from the people. Not only now, but back in autism with our discovery, there was an old antiviral drug, 100-year-old drug called Suramin, on the WHO list of essential medicine. It literally gave kids with autism a voice, a life. What did Bayer and Monsanto do? They took it away from everybody. You couldn't get it to save your life right now, and we tried. Believe me, every way we could. So when you take away a medicine... Um, it, and, and not just the, the not just the WHO, not just the WHO, the FDA, the CDC, Tony Fauci, closed everything, just end it all, and we've got a healthy world again, and we got tons of money because we can take all that money they're making on their patents, and we can give it to the victims of this plague of corruption. Is it safe to say that anything that cannot be patented has been shut down intentionally because there's no way to profit from it? All these natural remedies that we have had for ever. Absolutely, that's fair to say, and that's exactly what's going on in COVID-19. The game is to prevent the therapies till everyone is infected and push the vaccines, knowing that the flu vaccines increase the odds by 36% of getting COVID-19. Where does that data come from? A publication last year where the military who had been vaccinated with influenza were more susceptible to coronaviruses. Coronaviruses are in every animal. So if you've ever had a flu vaccine, you were injected with coronaviruses. And then to put on a mask. This doesn't make any sense. We wear masks in an acute setting to protect us. We're not wearing masks. Why is that? Because we understand microbiology, we understand immunology, and we want strong immune systems. Our immune system is used to touching. We share bacteria, staphylococcal, streptococcal bacteria, viruses. We develop an immune response daily to this stuff. When you take that away from me, my immune system drops. As I shelter in place, my immune system drops. You keep me there for months, it drops more. And now I'm at home hand-washing vigorously, washing the counters worried about things that are indeed what I need to survive. You're not, you're not immunodeficient and you're not uh, elderly. You should be able to go out without any gloves and without a mask. I think if you are those things, you should either set shelter in place or wear a mask and gloves. I don't think everybody needs to wear a mask and gloves because it reduces your bacterial flora. It doesn't allow you to interact with society and your bacteria flora and your viruses, your friends that protect you from other diseases, 
end up going away, and now you're more likely to get opportunistic infections, infections that are hoping you don't have your good bugs fighting for you, if that makes sense. And then as we all come out of shelter in place with a lower immune system and start trading viruses and bacteria, what do you think is going to happen? Disease is going to spike. I guarantee when we reopen, there's going to be a huge, huge amount of illness that's going to be rampant. The building blocks of your immune system is virus and bacteria. End of story. Wearing the mask literally activates your own virus. You're getting sick from your own reactivated coronavirus expressions. And if it happens to be SARS-CoV-2, then you've got a big problem. You're, you're not the first virologist who has told me that we're doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing to contain and to create immunity from this virus. Why would you close the beach? You've got sequences in the soil, in the sand. You've got healing microbes in the ocean, in the salt water. That's insanity. These institutions that are polluting our environment and our bodies, there was a time when they actually had to fight their own battles. But they've done such a great job at manipulating the masses that it's other people shutting down other citizens. And the big tech platforms follow suit and they shut everything down. There is no dissenting voices allowed anymore in this free country, which is something I never thought I would live to see. Uh, nor would I accept what I've experienced since 2011. It's beyond comprehension how a society can be so fooled that the types of propaganda continue to where they're just driving us to hate each other. You want to go to work yes. to get this disease? Uh, I think the medical profession know what they're they talking about. They've been wrong so far, ma'am. They've been wrong. Hopefully, this is the wake-up call of all America to realize this makes no sense and, and we win because it will take down the whole program with information like this. And, and for me, it's the great news that the doctors are waking up and saying, wait a minute. You, you doctors that are watching this, and I see a lot of you right here, why are you not getting loud? I'm here to defend you. I'm here to defend my freedoms. I'm here to defend my family's freedoms, my patients' rights to choose what to do with their life. I'm just blown away. And I'm blown away why there are not more doctors like me talking about this all over the place. We should be banding together right now. You need to wake up because your liberties are getting taken away from you all because of fake news that's out there. This is wrong. People should be going to jail for this stuff. So it's not the scientists who are in any way dishonest. They're listening to people who for more than 40 years have controlled who gets funded, what gets published. And I'm sorry to say many, many people will simply take the money and the fame and that support, things that absolutely aren't true. What do you say to the medical professionals that are just beginning to get a glimpse of the depth to which they have been misled and steered away from their oath to do no harm. I say forgive yourselves. It, it's the hardest thing to realize for all of us and is, is that with all the best intention, we studied, we learned what we thought was the truth. We had no idea that, that the, the data that we were being told was true was not true. We've been taught now in our, in our schools a very different science. You don't get funded if you don't speak the party line. You don't get published. That was probably the hardest thing for me to take, is understanding that scientific journals would, would twist the discovery that should have healed all.
Will the scientific community have the courage to answer the question of whether these diseases might have been of their own creation? So what we did pretty much ever since I got out of jail, we started an education company. We wake up doctors, and, and it's very difficult. But every doctor who realized they may have been part of the problem has now turned that around to march toward a better society and restore faith in the promise of medicine. That's all we can do. Well, Dr. Mikovits, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real honor to sit here with you, and particularly thank you for your courage. The idea that we are now a few days away from a new administration Given, as you heard from the introduction, that I have been around for a while and have had the opportunity of serving in five administrations, I thought I would bring that perspective to the topic today is the issue of pandemic uh, preparedness. And if there's one message that I want to leave with you today is that there is no question that there will be a surprise outbreak. The thing we're extraordinarily confident about is that we are going to see this in the next few years. Thank you. That last voice was from Dr. Fauci. He's a so-called expert that's advising President Trump on this pandemic. And from many viewpoints, he's also the cause of it. I have a good friend of mine who is a member of the Florida Morticians Association. He's a mortician in Florida. And they have been asked, as all state associations, to go back through the death certificates of the people who have died and that have been claimed as COVID-19 deaths. And what he's been finding is that if somebody dies from damn near anything whatsoever, the coroners are claiming and the hospitals are claiming that this person died by complications of COVID-19 or just death by COVID-19. He's finding that over 75% of these death certificates are fraudulent. Let's say your Uncle John has a spare bedroom in your house. Over 66% of people in the United States, when they die, they die at home, not in a hospital, not in a nursing home. They die at home. And that's an actual statistic. What happens and has been happening the past few months is people would call up the coroner and say, okay, Uncle John died. He's been in the back room now for a couple weeks, and he just finally kicked the bucket. And the coroner asks over the phone, well, did the doctor say what he died from? And the guy would say, well, we don't have a doctor here. He just died. So do you want to send one out? No, 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 no need. Just tell me the symptoms. Tell me what you think he died from, and we can verify it later. Well, he sneezed twice and then died. Oh, that's COVID-19. Boom. They never do an autopsy. Most of the time, never even looks at the body. They just claim that. That's how these states are making millions and millions of dollars off the federal government. If somebody dies from COVID-19 or complications from COVID-19, the federal government pays them X amount of dollars. And when I say X, we're talking forty to $50,000 each. What his organization in Florida is finding is that 75% of these death certificates could be fraudulent. That means their necks are on the line. So he's upset about it. This is what's happening worldwide. These numbers are fraudulent. My brother just went to an emergency ward in a place in Nevada. It's one of these little holes in Nevada. Uh, he, go, he went to an emergency ward there. He had a slight problem. The doctor comes in dressed in a full hazmat suit. I mean, he looked like Darth Vader. And he tells him, uh, you got to be careful because over 80 million people have died from COVID-19 in the United States so far. Pardon me? You mean, you mean 80,000? Uh, sure. Yeah, okay, 80,000 have died from COVID-19. Now, in the area he is, he's, it's like uh, up here, Coeur d'Alene. Nobody's sick. Nobody did. Here's another thing that this friend of mine, this mortician friend of mine, he said, have you noticed that deaths from heart attacks, diabetes, 
automobile accidents, gun wounds. I mean, he, he lists 12 different things that people normally die from. He said that's down about 90%. Have you noticed that? We are being lied to. There's no question about that. We all know this. This is planned. I'll have more information, and like I said earlier, I'll let you know exactly why and how powers that be have come to the conclusion that we have become enough like sheep that at this point in time, they have both the willingness and the ability to control us. And this is just a dry run. By the way, did you hear about what's happening in Tanzania? The president there was elected because he promised to get rid of all corruption in the country. So one thing led to another, and they didn't trust their laboratory, the National Reference and Public Health Lab, and it's run by the World Health Organization. They sent samples, swabs. They wanted to test uh, for COVID-19. They sent swabs of goat, bird, and a papaya. And the, the answers come back from the lab, and they classified all of those three as human, and they said the goat has COVID-19, but the bird and the papaya are infectious-free. In his country, he says, the president says, in my country, when we use the term heads will roll, we mean it literally. All this week, I've been listening on the news about how we're probably going into another depression. Our unemployment numbers now are greater than during the Great Depression. So I've been hearing a lot of this. What I'm going to play for you is a show I did in 2008, right after the abomination took power. Now, this show was cut 12 years ago. You're going to see similarities between this show and what's happening right now. The thing that that struck me as interesting was when the abomination took over as the president of the United States, within a very short period, our unemployment numbers were massively higher than they are now. So what we're looking at is the fact that Trump has been doing everything in his power to keep the economy above the level, above the level of what the abomination created. So I'll be back next week with another show. You guys make sure you tune in and and listen to me and you go to armchairsurvivalist.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page. You will see how to listen to me. There's all kinds of different ways to do it. All kind. Anyway, just give us a holler if you need any help. And thank you uh, for paying attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
singing this song Oh, lonesome song People, you know these hard times Can't last for so long mm -hmm. and gentlemen to a special episode of the armchair survivalist this is titled the great depression or deja vu all over again i did this show in november of 07 basically what i was trying to tell you is something very simple those that don't learn from history will repeat it welcome to history when i did this show in 07 the things that i talked about just starting to transpire but i guess that wasn't enough because people didn't pay that much attention. Because in 08, the first socialist Muslim, Barack Hussein Obama, was elected president of the United States in the first of its kind openly racist socialist communist election. He was put into power by the efforts of the entitlement voters. These are the people who live off government handouts. You know who they are. Or the people who get rich as poverty pimps by using the ignorant as a power base. Since the election... 56 million Americans have lost their jobs. Unemployment filings average 400,000 a week and have since the first week the abomination's been in office. 40, over 43 million people are on food stamps. Almost 400 banks have closed. Over 3 million homes have been foreclosed on. Businesses are in the Dow Jones. It's 30 companies. These are the major movers on the planet. They don't really give a damn about what's happening in America because they were smart enough years ago to get out. So their business is now international. They're all in foreign countries. If you watch the stock market this week, it was like watching a yo-yo championship. Up, down, up, down, up, down. But you know what? Every single time it went down, it was because of something going on overseas, not something happening in the United States because the stock market is totally separate from what is happening in the United States. And I want to tell you again, those that don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. What do you think? That's just something that people spew out now and then or something you read in a comic book or once in history class you might have read it somewhere? The first time I heard this, it was said in a different manner by Socrates thousands of years ago. I was raised pretty much by my grandfather. He was born in 1900. So he saw the whole of the Depression firsthand. I grew up poor, and I'm not wearing that as a badge. That's just a statement of fact. But I learned how to stretch a nickel. I was working, making money when I was six years old. Well, now that's illegal because, you know, children have rights too, you know. I learned what a dollar meant before I was 10 years old, and it wasn't a piece of paper. For my chores at home, I got 10 cents a week, which I instantly ran to the corner, drugstore, and blew on a Coke and a Babe Ruth candy bar. 10 cents a week. I was in hog heaven. Once a week, Mama would buy a pizza, half gallon of cottage cheese, and a dozen comic books for all of us. It sounds kind of strange, but that, that's what we got. Pizza and cottage cheese. I loved it. But the thing that I learned as a kid was how to stretch a nickel, how to use what I knew to survive. So you get this concept that's been spewed about of, oh, you've got to adapt to the environment. You've got to adapt to what's happening. Horse crap. You have to adapt your environment so that you can survive in it better. 
And that's what I was taught. I was taught how to make my environment more conducive to my survival. That's called using your wits. And those of you who know what I'm talking about, Grandpa also taught me how to make rock soup. I'm not going to go into it now, but also the term hobo stew. He also taught me how to fish, how to hunt, how to track. And I tell you to this day, I don't do any of that for sport. If I go out hunting or fishing, it's for food. I remember one time years ago, every, every opening season... Fish trout season, me and all my friends would go up to uh, Kybers, Northern California, and we'd camp out for about a week. A lot of beer drinking, a lot of cooking and food and camaraderie and horseshoe playing and, and fishing. But we couldn't get up there for about three days, and finally uh, uh, everybody else was already up there. So this is when my son Eric was four or five months old. So we finally got to go up. About three days later, I show up up there, and everybody's like, there ain't no fish. No fish in this river at all. This South Fork Eva River. There's no fish up here at all. I said, none of the guys. There's fish up there. It's a poor carpenter that blames his tools. So there's plenty of uh, fish out there. You just got to know how to get them. And they told me I was full of crap. Well, I said, look, I can't get in where the fish are with, with this van I'm driving. I need to borrow somebody. I need to borrow your Jeep. And the guy said, no, you're full of crap. Just don't touch my Jeep. I'm not letting you drive it. Well, the next morning, I got up at 4 a.m., hot-wired his Jeep, and took off. 7 a.m. I was back, and if Bill's listening to this show, he'll remember this, because I showed up, and Bill goes, uh, where the hell's the fish? I said, well, Bill, they're in the ice chest behind me. He opened the ice chest. There were about 31 trout. He didn't say a word. He just held his hand out. I gave him my knife, and he took them all down and cleaned them. That's how I was taught. I am not into this sports crap. We were taught how to eat. We were taught how to survive. He also taught me, Grandpa also taught me something interesting, that government is evil, period. There's no such thing as any government that isn't evil. A couple hundred years ago, they were set up to not be evil, but it kind of transposed themselves into becoming evil. And I mean city, county, state, and federal. And the only reason they exist and the only thought process that all governments have is how they could buy votes for their next election. And that's what they do. Everything they can, everything the government does is so that they can get more votes for the next election. And I don't care, Republican, Communist, Socialist, Democrat, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. Grandpa also explained to me the concept of corporations. I don't care about Black's Law Dictionary and explaining exactly what the definitions are. Corporations are giant businesses that exist as if they're a ghost. They have no one single person you can point your finger at and say, that's the son of a bitch that caused the problem. Corporations control America. But the thing that I did get from Grandpa is the ability to see. You know what that means? And I don't mean just to eyeball. I'm going to read you a definition. Because people don't know what it means to see. Just poking your eyes at something and go, oh, I can see that. See, to perceive with the eyes. To apprehend as if by the sense of sight, such as see with one's fingers. To have a mental image of, visualize. To understand, comprehend. I have the right and the ability to evaluate what's right and wrong. And I actually know what's right and wrong. And I've got the willingness to learn. Now, these are things that people don't have. I am willing to learn. There's, you know, there's three ways to learn. One way is by trying yourself and failing, which is a stupid way to learn. And generally, it's the idiots amongst us that have to learn that way because they're too arrogant to listen to an expert tell them, don't do that. Don't stick your hand on a fire. It will burn. Or you can watch others succeed or fail. I don't think I should stick my hand in that gopher's hole, considering there's a gopher hooked that other guy's fingers now. Or by education. And I don't mean schooling. I mean by, you know, reading something, practicing doing something, 
I have the ability to evaluate, to figure out whether or not something would work based on my memories, my intelligence, and what I've learned over the years. This week I had a conversation with a customer coming to the store who wanted to know what a true survivalist is, what a true prepper is. And I said, well, it's real simple. It's somebody who knows who Murphy is. He looks at me and goes, who the hell is Murphy? I said, Murphy, don't you know Murphy? Murphy's laws. Murphy has a rule. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And learning that and understanding that concept makes you a survivalist. If it can go wrong, it will. So if you can run out of food, you will. So store up food. If your gun can jam at the wrong moment, keep it cleaned and oiled. If you're going to trip over that electrical cord, get it the hell out of the way. Thinking ahead and setting your whole life. See, it's foreign to me to have to train myself to not stick my head in a lion's mouth. There's an old saying, don't stick your head in a lion's mouth if you don't want it bit. Problem is, too many people have no clue who Murphy is or why he would even matter. I have this producer from the Discovery Channel trying to get a hold of me. They want to do a series on survivalists, and they want to get survivalists, preppers, who are willing to allow television to film all of their preps and them and have them talk about it. She started off a couple of weeks ago hitting everybody, you know, all, all the blogs and the other radio. They got like three people <laughs> that are willing to stupidly show them everything they did and have. And it just shows me the imbecilic concepts that the general public have about thinking ahead or even paying attention to the past. I'm going to read you something Abraham Lincoln said, January 27th, 1838. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasures of the earth in their military chest with a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. And what Lincoln was saying with that, America's downfall will come from within. It will come from the ignorance of the population. It will come from the willingness of the population to follow the footsteps of those who have failed before them. Everyone makes mistakes. I'm not going to degrade people by saying, oh, that's just being human. That's BS. People make a mistake out of ignorance, out of confusion. Insulting somebody and calling them human is just an excuse. But what's been happening for the past hundred years is that people are simply, by choice, taking the path of least resistance. Some years ago, I was at a yard sale, and I buy books, because that's where knowledge is. And I saw this book by a guy named Studs Terkel, titled Hard Times, An Oral History of the Great Depression. She wanted all of 10 cents for this book. I thought, well, else that's not a bad deal. So I bought it, because I'd heard of Studs Terkel. I'd listened to some of his radio shows. He was born in 1912. He grew up in Chicago, graduated from the University of Chicago in 32, and from the law school, Chicago Law School in 34. He has been in radio soap operas. He's been a disc jockey a sports commentator. He's traveled all over the world doing on-the-spot interviews, and this is where I, I uh, heard about him. He had a daily radio program, WFMT in Chicago and WRVR in New York City. He interviewed people. He interviewed people that would not talk to anyone, but they talked to him. So I thinking, I'm going to read this book. That's kind of cute. After the first 10 pages, I was crying too hard to continue reading it. I couldn't read it. I couldn't sit down and read this thing straight through. This is history. This isn't some elitist writing history. This is an oral history. This is he interviewed people who survived the Depression, people whose children suffered because of the Depression. And he talked to them and recorded these interviews. This, this book, Hard Times, I advise you finding it if you can. It is something that you need to look at. Forewarned is forearmed. 
I know everybody's heard of the Wall Street crash of 1929. 1929? Was it 32? I thought it was 1980. I bet 75% of the people out there don't even know what the stock market crash means. It's a sudden dramatic decline of stock prices across a significant cross-section of a stock market, resulting in a significant loss of paper wealth. You understand what they're saying is paper wealth. That doesn't mean your commodities you have in hand, your gold, guns, lead, food, loses value. The economy had been growing robustly for most of the so-called Roaring Twenties. It was a technological golden age as innovations such as radio, automobiles, aviation, telephone, and a power grid were deployed and adopted. Companies that pioneered these uh, advances like uh, RCA and General Motors, their stocks soared. On August 24, 1921, the Dow Jones stood at a value of 64. By September 3, 1929, it had risen to about 381. By the summer of 1929, it was clear that the economy was contracting and the stock market went through a series of unsettling price declines. On December 24th, known as Black Thursday, and October 29th, known as Black Tuesday, it came to head. On Black Tuesday, the Dow average fell 38 points to a 260 points. Now, that was a drop of 12.8%. Now, what you need to look at is the percentage. They used to have ticker tape machines, little glass jars, little printers, and they would tick out. they print out these long strips that tell you what, stock, what the stock was at. These ticker tape machines were over overwhelmed. Telephone lines and telegraphs were clogged. People were trying to sell their, their stocks so fast and hard, they couldn't get to it in time to sell them. By the end of the weekend of November 11th, Dow Jones stood at about 228. It was a 40% drop. Before bottoming it out in 1932, the Dow Jones lost 89% of their value. That's the stock market crash. American businesses lost over $30 billion in value in just a few days. Thousands of businesses went belly up overnight, and I mean that literally. It be at work Friday, you come back to work Monday, and there's a sign in a door saying closed, out of business. Hundreds and thousands of people lost their jobs. Now, you've got to look at this in a percentage. There are hundreds and thousands of people losing their job weekly now in the United States. Weekly. Within weeks, there were thousands of homes that were foreclosed on. See, at that time, if you're late a week, banks would come in and snag your home. Remembers her father. Remembers also mortgages and the payment of mortgages in the 30s. I can remember how he used to scrimp and scrape to make his mortgage payment. He borrowed money from a loan company quite frequently when he couldn't make a mortgage payment. And then the, mo the loan company had to be paid. And I remember the tension in the house when, when Pa, as we, we call him, used to scramble around to get enough money to pay that loan installment. And, you know, that was the one degrading thing that I can remember in the Depression, that I remember going downtown to the loan company and paying the loan. And I used to hate that. I don't know why I felt it was so degrading. I suppose it may be that uh, I knew about what we had to do, you know, to gather the money together, and I knew how uh, irritable my father would be. So I, I used to feel degraded when I had to go down and pay that loan. Do you think you, even though you weren't affected harshly by it, as others might have been, your being a child or a young girl, a young woman of depression, has affected your attitude toward things, toward property, toward money? To me, anybody that would go out and borrow money to pay for something and pay for it on time is just absolutely ridiculous. I just wouldn't do that. The worst thing that I find that I have to do every month is pay my mortgage because I hate to see that interest being paid. And if I had the money, I'd pay it all up. I just loathe it, really. I mean, don't get me started. No, no, go ahead. I, want to get I just, I mean, I can't, I, 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 I just can't understand anybody buying anything on installments. I'd rather go without. Maybe it is really goes back to perhaps the, the loan company. I'll be darned if I'm going to pay anybody any money that really 
they shouldn't have. And I can remember going into it, and it was one of the, um, I won't mention the name, but it was a well-known loan company. But it's, it, I just feel, it, when I walk in, it seems to me that it was dingy, and yet I'm sure that it wasn't. And it must be just the way I felt, that there was something not quite right about it. Now, the gentleman you heard speaking was Tud Sturkle. Tud Sturkle. <laughs> Sorry, I got that bass backwards. And he had the ability to pull things out of people. The thing in the Depression is that people prior to that had been raised to be self-sufficient. They'd been raised that the man, his job was to work. His job was to be self-sufficient and work hard and provide for your family. And the job wasn't to stand in line and beg for food. His job wasn't to stand in line and hope that out of the 2,000 guys in front of him, they'd pick him to go work for a day. I'm in a cab right now. I'm talking to a young cab driver. Uh, if I say to you, the American Depression, what comes to your mind? Well, when I remember the Depression, of course, I was too small, but I, I, I do remember my father telling me what he'd done during the Depression. He spent two years painting his father's house. He painted it twice. It gave him something to do, and it prevented him from, you know, completely losing all his... Well, I wouldn't say self-respect, because after all, he was in a, in, a, in a position where there were many, many people who were also out of work, so he certainly wasn't alone. He had been working on construction before that. I think he had some... He, he told me that he had been working, putting up the old equitable building downtown. And, uh, I think it's 100 Broadway. He was working uh, walking on the steel beams. They ran out of steam here in New York, and the construction ran out around, I guess, just around the, around the end of the 20s, around the end of uh, 28 or 29. He never, no, he never forgot it, I suppose it, it left an emotional impression on him. I think it does something to somebody to be out of work for that length of time. And it, it's possible that it can affect your confidence in yourself. It's not that it, 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 you know, it destroyed his self-confidence because he always did very well and he had a good job. I could feel, you know, that it, it affected his outlook, his outlook on life, his, uh, his reaction towards uh, business and towards success. You know, I always thought he had a kind of an... In he was inordinately impressed by, by men who had made it in, in business, you know. It's, it's my own feeling that, the, that the, depression, the depression had something to do with this. Every day, I have people ask, when is the end going to come? When is the Schumer going to hit the fan? And I look at him and say, it already is for many people. The world is ending for many people. There are, every day, there are people out there who lost their job, lost their home, lost their, had everything burnt to the ground, and they're standing there with nothing but what they have on their back. Every day is the end of the world for someone. And the reverse of that is that most people have no clue what's going on, so they're just as happy as always. If you don't really know what's going on, you think that people are lying to you when they tell you, oh yeah, we're, we're having a depression right now, we're, we're in a depression. I was supposedly at that time in my life was very unfortunate because I was raised in an orphanage. Let's say I went into the home, I think it was 1933, about 10, 10 and a half years old. It was in Chicago. It was here in Chicago. It was on the uh, west side of 15th and Albany. I don't know. I had uh, clean clothes all the time, and we had plenty to eat. We had lessons. When you talk about food, when I see so much food now and that, I remember this period when we used to walk to uh, Harrison High School. We would go through Douglas Park, and uh, the railroad tracks came somewhere and uh, you would see the men there waiting for us to go through and hand them our lunches. If we would have something, you know, that the uh, dietitian at the home would prepare that we didn't like, we would give them the little brown paper bags. Are these what kind of men were they? They were guys who would probably work if there was work to do. They weren't the type. Now, today, I would truthfully have say studs that I would tell my daughters, you got to be careful of people, especially a certain types that look a certain way or that. I don't know. But then, either it was we didn't have fear because we were young or because 
house, I think it was depression time. Nobody was really around me. These were guys who uh, who didn't work, who didn't have work, and they would probably uh, ride the rails or I don't know how they got uh, where they were going or wherever they uh, ended up or that. But I remember on Friday we used to give them our lunch. However, there might have been 125 of us going off to Harrison High School carrying the same brown paper bag with mashed sardine sandwiches and mayonnaise on it. And from that, I still don't need a sardine. Well, we came from, uh, you either from broken homes or from parents that had been uh, divided by a From this home, you and your friends uh, would give the sandwiches to these guys. Right. But these were, I mean, they were, they were nice men. And they weren't, uh, you would never think that they would do you bodily harm. They weren't what you would call hobos or bums. These were hard luck guys. People today, when they talk about the good old times, I think, I don't know if they mean it with sentimentality. They can't mean these can't be good old times and they, that men wanted to work and couldn't work. Yeah, this was a woman who grew up in an orphanage. They didn't know that there was anything wrong. They would see uh, men hungry and they would give them their food. It was kind of confusing. Unemployment was 50% in many areas. People under 21 in Detroit, unemployment is 50% easily. Generally, it's about 35% in Detroit. And businesses just kept disappearing overnight and kept putting more and more people out of work. People could not, first quarter, 1900 to 1930 or so, people still had the idea in their head that if you work hard, you can flourish and prosper and be happy. And when it didn't work that way, they figured it must have been their fault. They must have screwed up somehow. They truly believed it was either their fault or punishment from God or they had no clue what was wrong. You're made to feel that uh, it's your own fault. If you're poor, it's only because you're, you're lazy and you're ignorant and you don't try to help yourself. And you're made to feel that if you get a check from the welfare that the bank at Fort Knox is going to go broke. It was not a romantic town. It was a town with the most terrible stuff. And it was a time when the contradiction was so obvious that it really didn't take a very bright person to see that something was terribly wrong with it. But now, in my own case, I thought, you know, it was so insane. The idea of children shaking into pieces with rickets and the milk being poured in the gutter. That was just so ridiculous. And it was, this went on. This wasn't just a few people. These were thousands of people. You see, in uh, Jefferson County, about four-fifths or three-fifths of the people were on relief. And there was no government relief, so this meant that they had this uh, just these $2 and a half a week that the Red Cross provided them and what they could beg, borrow, or steal. But the thing that also struck me as being so terrible was that just the way my mother and father had this terrible feeling of shame and guilt, and it was their failure that lost all their property. These people had the same feeling of shame and guilt they lost their jobs. They didn't blame the Republic Steel Company, are they? United States still, they didn't blame the capitalist system. They just blamed themselves. And they thought, well, you know, they would say in the most apologetic way, well, you know, if we hadn't bought that radio, if we hadn't bought that old second-hand car, if we'd saved our money. And, you know, they really blamed themselves. It was this terrible feeling they had of shame that they were on relief. And one of the things, too, that just struck me was its horror was that the fundamentalist preachers would tell them that they were suffering because they'd sinned. And uh, they believed that, too. They really felt that they had sinned and God was punishing them and that uh, children were dying of starvation and shaken with the rickets because of their own sins. To me, this was just perfectly horrible. I mean, the whole thing was just, and yet I didn't know the reason. And like she was saying, they didn't know the reason. They didn't quite understand. They didn't understand economics. They didn't understand domino factors. 
you folks out there are lucky because you have the ability to understand how dominoes fall. Whether you face it or not is up to you. You can see how it happens and you can see what happens. And they didn't have welfare at the time at all. But they did have Red Cross. They did have a lot of churches. There were a lot of rich people who actually set up bread lines, who actually donated bread, loaves of bread. Hundreds of thousands of people got food during the Depression simply the only way they could, which was from handouts. People came from the farms, the farms that were pretty much failing because of the Dust Bowl, which is a whole other story. They come to the city for uh, to find jobs and to provide for their family. So you, next thing you have is them standing in line. Not It was a, a foreign thing. It, it was totally not something that they'd ever thought about in their whole lives. When were you aware of the Depression? I believe when I first started noticing the difference was when we'd come home from school in the evening my mother would send us to the soup line we were never allowed to cuss but after we'd been going on that soup to the soup line for about a month we'd go down there and if you happened to be one of the first ones in line you didn't get anything but water that was on top so we'd ask the guy that was ladling out the soup into the bucket everybody had to bring their own bucket to get the soup and he'd dip the greasy watery stuff off the top and so we'd ask him to please dip down so we could get some meat and potatoes from the bottom bottom of the kettle and he wouldn't do it so then we learned to cuss and we'd say dip down god damn it <laughs> and then we'd go across the street and one place had bread large loaves of bread and then down the road just a little piece was a big shed and they gave milk and my sister and me would take two buckets each and we'd bring one back full of soup and one back full of milk and two loaves of bread each and that's what we lived on for the longest time and I can remember one time we didn't have anything to eat and I don't know if this was before the soup line I remember the only thing in the house to eat was mustard and my sister and me put so much mustard on biscuits that we got sick and we can't stand mustard right today when i was a kid they didn't have welfare they didn't have food stamps but they did have at, at that time the federal government had stores of food that they had stocked up throughout the united states in case of this kind of problem again they were quite proud the federal government was quite proud that they had at least seven days of food stored up for every citizen in the united states this is before the democrats realized if they allowed illegals in, they could buy new voters. So you have millions and millions of illegals in that aren't really citizens. But that food, they'd cycle it. You know, you'd rotate your food. You'd buy a bunch of food, and, and uh, you'd use it a little bit. And this is if you're at home, you know, you'd stock up food, and then you'd, you'd draw from that stuff you bought longest time ago, and you put the fresh stuff in the back. And the government do the same thing. They would hand out the old older foods to the poor they'd talk to the all the churches and say uh, on december 1st we're going to have a food handout down at uh, in oakland we'd all show up and everybody was given a box of stuff in it and we would get like um, powdered milk pancake mix a gallon tub of peanut butter the equivalent of a five gallon bucket of cornflakes Velveeta cheese that's all kinds of different stuff this last interview, he was talking about having just biscuits and mustard. Well, one month, all we had was cornflakes and peanut butter. You know, you can do a lot with cornflakes and peanut butter. 
Grandma taught us how to make uh, peanut butter balls and, and wrapped them in wax paper. And it just all kind of, well, we, uh, we had food. And it was as simple as that. And during the Depression, people didn't have money to buy the, all the commodities that the farmers were putting out. The milk and the beef, the pork, the eggs, corn. They just didn't have the money to buy it. And the government, being insane, come up with this brilliant idea that, well, people aren't buying it because the stuff's too cheap because there's too much of it out there. So what we're going to do is we're going to make the farmers kill off most of their dairy herds, kill off most of their hogs on their hog ranches and farms and plow under their corn and because you know how the law of supply and demand works when the supply is low, demand's high, prices should go back up high. Government being insane, all government up to this very day, had no clue what the hell they were doing. So here's starving people throughout the United States. The government's so disassociated with these people that they had no idea what the hell they were doing. All they were looking at was the dollar bill. And thousands of people are starving. He's a Wall Street investment agent. This guy survived through it because he worked for some of the larger investment corporations companies in New York City. And he was interviewed thing that comes into my mind so is the, uh, the sight of the uh, lying up and down the length of Times Square every day, lining up for coffee and donuts that were being dealt out from great trucks, and there would be a line of men stretched for two and three blocks and went out for hours. You see these men silent, shuffling along the line with their, for the most part, shabby clothes, but clothes that you you could see were many of them once pretty good clothes and getting this hand out. There's faces that stand and look at their faces and I see that kind of flat opaque specialist look which spelled for me human disaster. On every corner there would be men selling apples. Every corner. So he was talking about the men were thousands and thousands of them, and they would come to uh, Wall Street to try and get work, and they would stand in lines. They, they didn't have food, but some of the larger bakeries would fill trucks full of donuts. These donuts aren't like the ones we go buy a dozen of them for three ninety nine now with all kinds of sprinkles on them and chocolate syrup. This was just plain cake donuts and coffee. You know, they'd have like four or five of those donuts and a couple cups of coffee, and that's what they'd eat all day while they were waiting, trying to find work. Do you ever read The Grapes of Wrath? If you have not read The Grapes of Wrath, that is a must-have book. That is a rear-view mirror that should be read by every citizen in the United States at least twice, once when you're young and the other time when you're older. Because it talks about people saying, you know, there's nothing here. I'm going to have to hit the road. And that's what thousands of people did. They took to the road. They followed the harvest, one harvest to another. They picked fruit vegetables. They walked, hitchhiked. They drove covered wagons. They rode in jalopies. They just moved about. But how did your husband get around? What means a transport? We hitchhiked. I was pregnant when we first started hitchhiking. People were really very nice to us. Sometimes they would feed us. And then I remember the one time we slept in a haystack and the lady of the house came out and found us and she says, well, this is really very bad for you because you're going to have a baby. And she says, you need a lot of milk. So she took us up to the house and she had a lot of rugs hanging on the clothesline because she was doing her house cleaning. And we told her we'd beat the rugs, you know, for her giving us the food. And she said, no, she didn't expect that, that she just wanted to feed us. And we said, no, that we couldn't take it unless we worked for it. So she let us beat her rugs. And I think she had a million rugs. And we cleaned them. And then we went in and she had a beautiful table just all full of all kind of food and milk. And then when we left, she filled a gallon bucket full of milk and we took it with us. You don't find that now. I think maybe if you did that now, you'd get arrested. I think somebody would call the police. 
And actually, there's stories that come out in the past month of people being arrested, being charged because of helping other people by giving them food. See, they didn't have politically correct words like street people or yeah, hobo's a hobo. And these guys knew it. And they traveled around. And I remember as a kid, we lived right on the railroad tracks in Eureka, California for a short period. And right down about a couple hundred yards from the house on the other side of the tracks was a hobo camp. This is where I learned about the term hobo stew. They had a five-gallon paint bucket that somebody had cleaned out really well and had on a tripod above us always burning fire. And, and everybody that could would come by and toss something else in there, either a, a rabbit or a can of corn or a couple of chopped up taters or, or what have you. And there was always five-gallon bucket of, of bubbling food. You never knew what you were going to dip into there, but I used to talk to these hobo. In fact, one of them saved my life one time. I was walking along the railroad tracks, and there was actually there was some quicksand there between the uh, ties. And I jumped right, on, right between the ties, and I went straight down like a wet bag of Schumer. And uh, I yelled, and one of these hobos heard it and come running up and I was right at my neck and he reached down grabbed me and pulled me up and took me home and I got tan I got my butt tan for doing that I wasn't supposed to be down at the hobo camp but the they'd always talk about how I'd hear them they talk about how yeah well I know where work is there's there's a work headed south of here there's plenty of work there's uh there's there's work in the vineyards north of here up in the Klamath or there's uh there's work over here oh hell you know what I'm, I'm heading down to Sutter's Mill I understand they still got gold down there and I'm just going to go down there and strike it rich or I'm going into Sacramento Sacramento, and I'm going to ride the rail here all the way down into Sacramento, and they're always talking about finding a special place where they don't have to bust their butts, where they don't have to keep traveling, where they don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning... Down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountain. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes, and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty, and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad pulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the church that invented work in the big rock candy mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. Yeah, they talked about that. 
Now, when I was young, it was a couple decades after the Great Depression or so, and uh, they still talked about that. They still talked about finding the mother load, finding a place where they, they could settle down and, and be happy. But these guys didn't. Hobos don't want to settle down. They like to travel. But people in all throughout the United States, they were losing their homes, their farms, kind of like exactly what's happening now. And the banks then and the government then, as now, they had no concern for the people. They really flat don't care. It's only money. If you were a week late on your mortgage payment, they'd start for foreclosure actions. I remember about a year ago reading about this judge in Florida who was bragging how he could do a foreclosure one every 30 seconds. During the Depression, these arrogant and elitist judges became famous. They'd issue over 400 judgments a day. And then they'd go home at night to their mansions, servants, and the good food. And they had farm auctions. It was common sight. Sometimes what would happen is uh, the friends of the farmers get together and they'd all agree that we're going to bid pennies on this for Johns. And then at the end of the auction, we'll just give him back everything. Well, the bank auctioneers, if, if there was a bid and a second bid above that, by law, they had to take that second bid. So somebody bid a penny on this guy's house. And the second guy would say, I bid two cents. And they did that a lot. Guys ended up getting their farms back. They just pay him back for everything. I've had people say, what do you mean losing their farm? How can they lose their farm if it's been in their family for a 100 years? Well, what happens is it was hard making a living off of uh, farming. So when you're ready to plant, you would go to the bank and you'd get a loan against your farm for seed repairs on your farming implements, maybe a horse or something, you know. You'd get a loan for the new season, knowing or hoping that, you know, once everything was harvested and you sold everything, you could pay back the loan easily and still have profit. That was standard. Credit was a destroyer. And that's what happened. Is these farmers, they kept getting more and more credit. And then there were droughts. So they lost their butts. These farms that have been in the families for hundreds of years were auctioned off. Large corporations. Kind of like what's happening now. We're literally paying pennies on the dollar. Let's say you owe $20,000 and you had a 100-acre farm with a nice house and a barn and cattle and pigs and chicken. And Well, if you owed $20,000 and all that people had cash was maybe $1,000, well, that whoever bought it, they'd have everything lock stock and barrel for a thousand dollars and then the government come after you or the banks would come after you for the balance they would take everything you owned literally to satisfy those debts after a while those farmers got a little uppity they got a little upset at this because the banks didn't want to listen to reason didn't want to listen to anyone saying, you know what, give us a chance, please. Government didn't want to listen. They could care less because the government is controlled by the banks, which are controlled by the corporations. When I say to you, Mr. Helene, the Great American Depression, what thought comes to your mind or memory? I suppose if you want to go back to the real struggle of the individuals when after he'd lived all his life on a given farm, he lost it. It was taken away from just one after the other. We didn't have very many laws that protected the individual as we have today. For instance, you had a foreclosure and the mortgage was rather substantial, but after the foreclosure, there wasn't enough value in the farm to cover the face of the mortgage, so they got a deficiency judgment against the individual, and he couldn't pay. So not only did he lose the farm, but he had a judgment placed upon him that would almost make it impossible for him to ever get out of debt. The judge in Plymouth County Court had a habit of very quickly and easily giving a deficiency judgment. Not only that, but he 
would issue foreclosure papers and would have closing out sales of the farmers. And it got so that the farmers couldn't stand it anymore. They'd see the neighbors sold out. There were no purchasers to speak of because there wasn't any money. So the little that the farm sale would produce wouldn't pay the bills. First they'd take the farm and then they took your working material, your livestock and farm machinery and even the household goods. Everything was mortgaged and that moved you off. So these farmers that gathered this particular day came down from Primgar and drove through Marcus, stopped up here at the community oil station and I suppose some of them probably decided that they ought to have a little drink on the side and so they developed a little courage. They decided that we'll go down and we'll teach that judge a lesson that's holding court and issuing these deficiency judgments and putting people off of the land. They marched into the courtroom, hats on, demanded to see the judge and to visit with him. He decided that he would teach them a lesson and so he says, gentlemen, this is my court. I want you to review, remove your hats and address the court properly. They just laughed at him. And he says, we came in here to get redress from your actions. We're not concerned about whose court this is, except that it is doing the things that we can't stand to have done to us anymore. And so this argument kept on until they got rougher and rougher, and they finally went up and drug him from his chair, pulled him down the steps of the courthouse, and shook a rope in front of his face, and then tarred and feathered him. The governor called out the National Guard and put some of these farmers behind barbed wire. Are oh, you just imagine National Guard putting a whole group of farmers behind barbed wire in this state? You don't forget these things. The farmers met in Lamar's and marched up to the courthouse where Judge Bradley was sitting on the bench, in, on the bench and sitting in court. The farmers uh, objected to the uh, losing their farm foreclosure. I think the farmers were right. They were. They had a just cause because, for instance, they'd have a a, a mortgage on their farm, say a fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, whatever it was, on their farm. They would foreclose it and lose that entire farm. The farm is worth probably seventy or eighty thousand, and uh, they'd foreclose that and take the whole works on a fifteen or twenty thousand dollar mortgage. That wasn't fair, and I don't blame them for. Taking the head ahead, taking the stand that they did. They uh, took the judge off of his seat and well, put a rope around him. They were going to hang him. They were going to hang him, yeah, they took him out. He was frightened. He was scared, he was scared to, death. to death. Did they tar and feather him? No, no. no. Oh, the well, no, they, judge, they tarred and feathered, I think. Not I here. But not here. But they had the rope around his neck. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was pretty well. Well, frightened. he was scared to death because. He couldn't do anything. There wasn't anything he could do. All he could do was carry out the law, the law, whatever the law was. It really ruined his life. He never was the right after oh, that. No. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He was, well, I think he retired. He was not well at all. I think the effects of that. Mm. Oh, that's quite hey, a shock to yeah. an older man. When you're within an inch of having your life yeah. take him a mob. Uh, a group of farmers, you know, there were hundreds of them, I guess. And yeah. he was at their mercy, and uh, I don't know how they finally decided not to do it. 
See, during a depression, people had a little gumption, but that's been bred out pretty much and drugged out because the powers that be just flat don't want us getting pissed off or getting uppity when their uh, corporate agents take our property, steal from us. They got many different words they use for it now. They, they call it uh, asset forfeiture. They call it uh, foreclosure. There's a lot of people out there. I have a lot of listeners who argue with me on this point, and they say, no, 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 when the Schumer hits a fan and the government, government orders, as they will, when the government orders the National Guard or the military to come in and do things, well, they're not going to because that, that'd be anti-constitutional. But did you just listen to what I said? They called the National Guard in. They do what they're told. If I wanted to, to do a couple hours of research, I could find 50 times when the military or law enforcement in the United States violated constitutional restrictions and common morality in dealing with the citizens of the United States. Don't ever think the military or law enforcement are your friends. They're not your friends. They're not your allies. They have a job to do. It's as simple as that. And they'll do it. Don't ever doubt it. Prior to that time, everyone was convinced that they, the bank was the best place to put your money. Put your money in the banks. It's safe in the banks. Why? Why is it safe in the banks? Because the banks are big, made out of concrete and steel. Makes them safe, don't you know? And the banks started falling like dominoes. And literally, and this is not exaggeration, my grandpa was telling me of a bank in, in Placerville, that uh, folks would go there and cash their, their paychecks, and the bank would say, you know, you got this paycheck here for, for 50 bucks. Now, how much can you, do you need all 50 of it? You, how about just ten dollars of it and people say okay just deposit most of it and that's what they did they deposited most of their checks and then took out just took a little bit out and grandpa had his check he had a twenty five dollar check he sold a car for twenty five dollars he went to the bank and they they said well yeah, do you need all of it and this was standard procedure well, he said hell yeah i need all of it i'm going gambling so they gave him all of it and monday morning the bank was empty when i say empty i mean the door was wide open all the desks were gone the vault was empty everything was empty the bank the sign up top was gone everything was gone the bank had closed over the weekend Anybody who had money in that bank lost it. You had no recourse whatsoever. Now, first, the bank started restricting the amount you could withdraw, kind of like what they're doing now. And a lot of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about. The banks are restricting how much money you can withdraw. There are some banks that are charging you a percentage for your withdrawals. And they're doing that because they don't want you taking all the money out because they don't have money. Most of the banks now, in fact, all of the banks in the United States do not have the money to cover the deposits that have been deposited because they've invested that money. So to, as an example, let's say a bank opens up on a corner and people deposit up to about a million dollars. Logic denotes there's still that million dollars is sitting there in the bank. No, there might be $20,000, $30,000 cash sitting in that bank. The rest of it's been loaned out or invested. And what happens is these banks started shutting their doors. That was it. You lost all your money. The corporate government here in the United States come out with this Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that claims that your money is covered up to $250,000 deposit. Well, the FDIC is flat broke. They end up buying banks back anywhere from 50 to $500 million a week. Every Friday night, the FDIC posts what banks that went belly up. And if you do a little bit of research, you realize they're out of money. Where the hell is the money coming from? The money's coming from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve being a private corporation and in direct violation of the Constitution just prints up more money, hands it to the Federal Reserve, says, here, use this. Oh, by the way, let me have those mortgages as just as collateral because I know you're going to pay us back, right? At the end of the Depression, over 9,000 banks had gone out of business. Now, there's a difference between the banks then and banks now. Banks then, there was a bank on every corner. I mean a bank, not a branch, a bank on every corner. Now, you have branches 
on every corner, like Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo has like 23,000 branches, and most banks do. Most banks have more than one branch. So when you hear about a bank closing, that's not just one branch they're talking about. You'd have the name, like Citizens Trust of East Texas. Well, Citizens Trust has 15 branches all throughout Texas. So when the news comes out, Citizens Trust closes, that's 15 different branches that just closed. And for now, the government is covering any of the deposits. But I wouldn't trust that, especially anything that has to do with a safety deposit box. Safety deposit box, people use the term safety, thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that means it's safe. My money, my stuff, whatever I put in that box is safe. Well, right now, British police are seizing safety deposit boxes. Right now in England, like I said, they're, they're seizing uh, safety deposit boxes in certain areas. And I have people who are, I have people who have talked to me who have had their safety deposit box seized here in the United States. My uncle was a, one of the vice presidents of Crocker Bank before it was bought by Wells Fargo years ago. And his job was to go bank to bank and inventory abandoned safety deposit boxes. If nobody's been there for, nobody's checked into it or paid for their box over a year or two years, I don't remember exactly what it was, was to go and inventory what's in that box for probate purposes in case the person had died. And I used to go to him. I'm a kid. I used to go with him. We would find piles of gold, piles of cash, guns, knives, jewelry, all kinds of stuff. And I asked him, well, why are we going in these boxes if they're safe boxes? They're, they're, don't, don't they belong to someone? Well, we don't know if they do or not. But what we're going to do is we're going to inventory it, take it all, put it in a box, and put it into a giant vault downtown, San Francisco, down in the basement. So if this person ever shows up, or if they're... Uh survivors show up, say, hey, Fred Lipschitz was my uncle, and I, I got the rights to a safety deposit box, and if they can prove it, then we, we'll go get it and give it to him. I said, Uncle Ray, what happens if uh, nobody comes by? He goes, well, there's a few more years goes by, and then it, and the government gets it. The government gets it. Well, who do you think owns the banks? Who do you think controls all this? And during the Depression, there was a hell of a lot of disparity, because it wasn't everybody starving. It wasn't everybody poor. And just like now, there were only specific areas that were hit massively. There were some people who actually had jobs and could make it work, but there were always the elitists. Then as now, the government was ran by the elitists. There's one thing that started me thinking. It was President Roosevelt's cufflinks. I read in the paper about how many pairs of cufflinks he had, and it told that some of them were rubies. <laughs> and all precious stones, these were his cufflinks. And I just wondered, I, I'll never forget, I was sitting on an old tire out in the front yard, and we were hungry and so poor. And I was sitting out there in the hot sun, there weren't any trees. And I was wondering why it was that one man could have all those cufflinks when we couldn't even have enough to eat. Right now, we have an abomination in the White House, as they did then, who is basically going on vacations right and left. Right now, is paying 50000 He's going on vacation, paying $58,000 a week for uh, the vacation that he's going on. And his wife and kids go on these million-dollar junkets right and left. The abomination goes out there and plays golf. Quite a bit. Nothing wrong with that. I, uh, it's fine. But while he's out there living it up, of course, he's the elitist and he knows what's right and wrong and what should be done and what shouldn't be done because that's that's his job. He's a, he's the Messiah, so he knows everything. And it just us stupid people just can't quite get a grasp on what he wants done. And it'd be, it's our own damn fault that we can't make it work. And even, even during the Depression, it just didn't work. There was people lose their homes, lose their farms, lose everything, and they'd end up, they'd end up make, finding a 
place, throwing up some tin or some cardboard or some tar paper or a tent, and they called these places Hoovervilles. Hooverville was a popular name for shanty towns built by homeless people during the Depression. They were named after the president of the United States at the time, Herbert Hoover, because he had allegedly let the nation slide into depression. Hoover was, I don't know, it had been said that Hoover was more feminine than he was masculine, and he just sort of let everybody do what the hell they wanted, and he did nothing, nothing right in any way, shape, or form. And the Hooverville was describing all these tent cities that were common during the Depression. My dad said to us kids, all of you get in the car. I want to take you and show you something. And on the way over there, he talked about how rough life had been for us. And he said, if you think it's been rough for us, he said, I want you to see people that really had it rough. And he took us over, this was in Oklahoma City, and he took us to one of the Hoovervilles. And that was the most incredible thing. Here were all these people living in old, rusted-out car bodies. I mean, that was their home. There were people living in shacks made out of orange crates. One family with a whole a whole lot of kids were living in a piano box. And here, this this wasn't just a little section. This was an area maybe 10 miles wide and 10 miles long. People living in whatever they could jam together. Now, I remember as a kid seeing actual video that had been taken. I was down in Hollywood, and I was looking some recordings that had been done. This was in the outskirts of Beverly Hills. They didn't advertise this, and they didn't brag about it, but there were some tent cities, some Hoovervilles there, where literally they people had moved into some vacant areas. One guy had dug an eight-foot hole that was about 10 feet wide by 20 feet long and eight feet deep, and he had a ladder going down in it, nothing covering it. He was working on getting some tar paper or something to cover it, but him and his family moved into this hole. This is where they were living. Now the people would throw a tent over their car. See, nowadays people say, oh, that's just camping. But this is where the people lived. They had nowhere else to live. These weren't street people, quote unquote. These, these were homeless. These were real homeless. Not somebody who said, you know, I hate you. I'm going to go run away and live on the street. These are people who don't have an option. I have customers that come in my store that lived for two years in his car. And now he's trying to make it go right. And I have women who have lived in their vans or who have lived in the campers. If any of you remember the woman, Angie Dickinson, we met her some years back and she was living a class B motorhome which is like an, a big van with her loudmouth parrot and she was making enough money to survive on but that was about it I don't know what the whole story was on that but that's what people did. They had to. Can't just give up and say the hell with it and shoot themselves. Talking about the Hoovervilles. Now, yeah, that was then, right? That's that's that kind of thing. That would never happen here, would it? We'd never have any like Obamavilles, would we? The situation here at home for so many people is becoming more and more dire. In the capital city of the state of California, a tent city has gone up for those who have run out of options. It's grown in size and quickly. Our report tonight from NBC's Chris Jansen. Along the railroad tracks in Sacramento, a modern-day shantytown is swelling, fragile shelter for the city's exploding homeless population. The images, hauntingly reminiscent of the iconic photos of the 1930s and the Great Depression. With unemployment rising, there are now at least 2,100 homeless in Sacramento. About 300 live here, with more arriving every day. Many of the stories here are heartbreakingly similar. Middle-class Americans living paycheck to paycheck lose their job, then their house, and have nowhere to go. Every shelter in Sacramento is filled to overflowing. It's happening in Seattle, too. Tense cities in Reno and Nashville. Sudden homelessness brought on by unexpected, shocking poverty. The new mayor, former NBA star Kevin Johnson, grew up in Sacramento. This has been a, a dirty little secret, and we've kind of swept it under the rug. The evocative Depression-era images return. At dusk, dinner is simmering in a pot made out of a coffee can. Advocates say that by morning, as many as 50 more people will be homeless in Sacramento. 
you haven't seen this story yet this morning, you need to stop what you're doing and take a look. The images will stun you. Up to 50 people are reportedly showing up to the tent city each week. Many of them have lost their jobs and consequently their homes. Very sad and an upsetting state of this country's affairs. A century and a half ago, this area around Sacramento was basically the center of the gold rush. Prospectors pitching their tents along the banks of the American River in order to strike it rich. And today what we see is regular Americans pitching their tents, sometimes in the shadows of downtown Sacramento's skyscrapers, in the hopes of basically buying more time or simply because they just don't have any other choice. The shelters in and around the town are absolutely overflowing with people. Uh, we understand from authorities that there's some 1,500 or so uh, people living in these 10 cities. And as you mentioned, with 50 newcomers joining them essentially every single week. Now, I've been to these 10 cities in Sacramento. I know the areas. I have physically seen these cities, as they call them. Well, there's hundreds of them. There's hundreds of people in these areas, each one. And there's more than just one or two in the Sacramento area. There's some downtown. There's some off of railroad tracks. People that went through the Depression, they didn't talk about this, but there were thousands and thousands that committed suicide. And the ones that w went through it were scarred, both emotionally and physically. I've met people who survived it and ended up kind of screwed up in the mind. And they would do things like they didn't believe in buying toilet paper because it was something you throw away, so they had special handkerchiefs that they'd uh, wipe their butt with. Just like a diaper, you know, you change your diapers for your baby. And then they would save these in basket, and then uh, once every day they'd take them and they'd hand wash them. But there's nothing like the degradation of being reduced to a nothing. A worthless lump of hungry flesh that survives with the grace of others. A non-productive member of society. A worthless eater. It's almost startling to me that um, the generation that lived and grew up during the Depression would not tell their children about it or describe it to them in detail simply because they were ashamed of it. I think this certainly surprises me. I never thought that uh, uh, the people themselves would be ashamed of it. I imagine it, it's, it's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. If anyone was going to uh, feel um, like it was their fault or something, I suppose it might be uh, people in government uh, who realized, look, there's inflation or there's deflation or you know, there's margin buying and spending is not going to work and they're the ones that missed the boat and I imagine they're the ones that, that should have uh, if anyone was going to you know jumped off that building but certainly I don't think that the people that grew up or were factory workers or white collar men or blue collar men or men that didn't wear any collars at all are going to should feel any shame at all about it it was something that happened in the American economy and it just it just it by its happening it gave us a chance to realize exactly what caused it and we are hopeful that it won't happen again. Yeah, we're hopeful that it won't happen again, but the problem is those that don't learn from history are, are bound to repeat it. And that's exactly what's occurring in the United States right now. There are people much more learned than I who have gone back through history and said the same exact thing happened 350 years ago, same exact thing happened 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and on and on and on and on. And it just keeps happening and happen. And the people who went through the Depression, both the people like my grandparents who went through it, and their children. And this is where socialism gets its toehold here in the United States. When you have those of such richness on one side and people who are so poor that they can't even, the old saying goes, they don't have two nickels to rub together, that is a disparity of values and it's astounding. Now, during the Depression, it wasn't as if people sat on their butts at home, got food stamps, welfare, became obese and popped out children like they're making a jiffy pop, popcorn. It didn't happen that way. The people then were astounded and in shock. And it's like, what do you mean I, I don't have a job? What do you mean I can't get a job? That's impossible. What the hell is that? This country? This country is so great. How, how, how could I not have a job? People became just a 
justifiably angry at the at the rich. Children shouldn't have to go around stealing. There's enough in this country to give all of them everything they want, anytime they want it. And I say that's what we're going to have. I don't think people were put on earth to suffer. I think that's a lot of nonsense. We are the highest development on the earth. And I think we were put here to live and be happy and enjoy everything that's here. I don't think it's right for a handful of people to get a hold of all the things that make living a joy instead of a sorrow. When you wake up in the morning and the minute consciousness hits you, it's just like a big hand takes a hold of your heart and squeezes it because you don't know what that day is going to bring. I think that's the worst thing that our system does to people is to take away their pride and it prevents them from being a human being and they're wondering why the Harlem and why the Detroit and they're talking about troops and law and order and you get law and order in this country when people are allowed to be decent human beings and be able to walk in dignity. Well, unfortunately, the way the government has propagandized it over the years, dignity and your pride is something that you're supposed to have automatically and not by earning it. And I won't, I won't say who this was, but when, when my son was younger and I, I ran a gun shop in Modesto, California, one of our relatives got kicked out of his house, so he shows up at our place. I told his uh, parents that I will take him in and I will raise him and I will put the fear of me in him and he will be a success in life. And this kid shows up with these, it, I can't call them shorts. Uh, they were kind of like shorts that went down almost to his knees. He had t big floppy tennis shoes that were untied. He had a, a real long T-shirt. His hat was sideways on his head. He had pimples in every everywhere you could dream of on his face, his arms, his legs. I set him down, and I'm explaining to him what he's going to be doing. He goes, you can't talk to me like that. You can't tell me that because I got my pride, and I looked at him. <laughs> Everyone around, my brother, my son, my wife, they were trying not to laugh. And I said, you got your pride. Where would you get that pride from? You get that pride from failing high school. You get that pride from doing drugs. You get that pride from living in the woods because you got kicked out of your house. You get that pride from the fact that you have no concept of cleanliness and your body is infected with who knows how many critters. Where do you get this pride? But that's pretty much what they got now. You, got, you have in the United States over 50%. And I've been told it's almost 60%. All it has to be is 25% and the country's gone and we're over 50% of people who live with their lips firmly attached to the government's tit. They couldn't survive if they didn't get something for free. They couldn't survive in any way, shape, or form if they couldn't get something from the government one way or the other. Food stamps, Medi-Cal, welfare, free daycare, free cars, free houses. This whole economic calamity we're in is not a surprise, ladies and gentlemen. Let's come up into present time now. We talked about the depression. What, do you think it's not happening now? Every single thing I talked about, you can turn around and see it somewhere. And if you can look at the way society is and put a volume control knob on it, the Great Depression, quote unquote, was probably on a scale of 1 to 10, 0 to 10 on this control knob, was probably about a 5. Right now, we're about 6.9 on this control knob. So percentage-wise, we are way worse off than they were then in that degree. We lost, America lost all kinds of farmland because of the Dust Bowl and poor farming methods. We've lost farmland now because of corporate greed, corporations buying off the farms and shutting them down. We have less farmland right now active in the United States than they had during the Depression. We're having to get most of our food imported from China, South America, and other places. This whole thing was planned with a total intent to create an entitlement society of paid, ignorant voters. This 
There's no questions. There's no mystery. This is how it's done. You take away a person's ability to survive on his own. You take away a person's willingness to make it on his own and convince them that they're too stupid, dumb, dangerous, ignorant, or weak, and they must have help from the government to survive. And now you have America. Now, obviously, it's not 100% of us. There's people like me who I won't take a damn thing from the government because I know I know what it means when you make a deal with the devil. There are people out there who say, I'll be more than happy to trade my soul because I don't believe I have one. I'll be more than happy to trade it for four years of college or a good job. But then there are those of us who can learn by looking and seeing exactly what happened and know what's going to happen. And by the way, our government has come up with a great idea of how to cure everything. In fact, there's, I just saw the commercial this morning. I was in chronic pain, and my family struggling to make ends meet, food and gas prices going up, even keeping my job was iffy. Then I learned about a new miracle drug made in Washington, D.C. Spenditol. Spenditol is Washington's answer to all the painful problems Americans face. How to borrow $800 billion for a stimulus that didn't create jobs or fix the economy? Spenditol. Spenditol is not for everyone. Side effects may include a mountain of government debt piled on our kids, a sudden loss of freedom. Higher prices for everything, leaving our kids a lesser America than we had. Ask your doctor or congressman if your conscience is strong enough for Spenditol. And it's so popular in Washington, we have to borrow. I mean, import trillions more of it from China. Spenditol makes you feel better now and pushes off the really bad stuff till later for them to deal with. Yeah, it's kind of humorous and funny, but I'll tell you this. Murphy was real. You need, ladies and gentlemen, to plan because you're going to either be a survivor or a victim. And there could be many different things that occur in your life that cause this phenomenon to occur for you individually. It could be a flood. It could be a fire. It could be the threat of government agents or the military or law enforcement. We have in the United States right now many organizations that are reminiscent of Nazi Germany. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong would stand in awe at what the past few presidents have accomplished within the United States because they've not been able to accomplish this kind of suppression in their own countries without murdering hundreds of thousands of people. And yet here in the United States, we just bend over and say, well, just don't make it hurt too much. Just like I've always said, you need to plan ahead. You need to put money aside if you can. When I was a kid, I was told, take 10%. Now my minister at the church said, you take 10% of whatever you earn and you put it aside. And I said, don't you mean you give it to you? And he goes, what are you, out of your mind? No, you give us what you can. But you need to take 10% of whatever you earn. If you earn a dollar, you take 10 cents and you put it in your piggy bank. If you earn $10, you take a dollar of that and you put it in your piggy bank. And you don't touch that until times of dire need. And I took that to heart, ladies and gentlemen gentlemen. I really did. And over the years, I've done that. And my wife, who I've known now for about 30 years, give or take a millennium, she thought I was kind of nuts when I explained this to her. But she thanks me for it now, because now we have the ability to survive. Because I put aside money. I put aside food. I put aside everything that you would need in case the stores closed, the trucks stopped coming, people started getting hungry, people started getting scared. And they will. There's not even a question about this. This is, this is what happens. And the corporate representatives, our government, is doing everything in their power to throw bread and circuses at the masses. This is what the Romans did. Free bread. Never worry about being hungry and we'll keep you amused with the circuses. So even if you don't want to get up and work, well, you can get food stamps. You can get food somehow. There's always some place giving away free food. You know something interesting I discovered about life? Life is a participation sport. You can't run it on the sidelines. You've got to get right in, roll your sleeves up, and get down and dirty. 
and then you have to persist at it. In your 20s and 30s, and even in some of us into the 40s, it's uh, having a good time going out on the weekends to their lake, to the river, you know, floating around and rafts, getting drunk, going playing games, enjoying life, not participating, just being there. And then there are those of us who actually paid attention, who actually learned from history. So I want all of you to do the same thing. You can go on armchairsurvivalist.com, scroll down to show notes, and there'll be a list of all the different shows I did and different things to, uh, you know, they, they, they're entitled. They'll tell you what you can, you want to learn how to survive a little bit better, go there and read some of that stuff. You want to listen to my archives? On the left-hand side of any of the armchairsurvivalist.com pages is the little nipper listening to the RCA gramophone. Click on that, and that's my archives. You can listen to any of the shows. My job is to help you. My job is to get you off your butt, piss you off sometimes, make you think sometimes, and try and impress upon you the importance of thinking ahead. That concept of thinking ahead is foreign to most people. They go, what the hell does that mean? That means Murphy was a real person, and Murphy's Law works. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Always... Expect the best, but plan for the worst. And that's why I have my company. And that's why I have my radio show. The last part of this show is a song that I play at the end of every one of my shows. The writer is going to explain the song, and I want you to listen to it. I appreciate you all listening, and I hope I helped. You go to se1.us. You can call us, Survival Enterprises, 800-753-1981. That's 800-753-1981. Seven days a week, we are here to help you. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I'd follow the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there, right there on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread We thought American business, American economics was the rock of Gibraltar that we were the prosperous nation in the world that nothing could stop us now, that a brownstone house was forever, that you gave it to your kids and that they put marble fronts on it. And uh, it was a feeling of continuity. And it was a feeling of, if you made it, it was there forever. And suddenly the big dream exploded like a bubble. So this uh, crash came. We were, this beautiful uh, fantasy business of ours was over. And uh, I was walking along the street at that time, as you always do, seeing the bird lines. Well, that brother, can you spare a dime, finally hit you on every block and every street. And I thought that would be a wonderful title if I could only work it out by telling people, by through the song, that it isn't just a man asking for a dime, saying I'm hard luck. This is a man who says, I built the railroads. I built that tower. I fought your war. I was the kid with the drum. I was the guy cocky. Why the hell should I be standing in line now? Why? What happened to all this wealth that I've created? And I think that's what made the song live. Say, don't you remember? I'm your pal. But even you spare dime 